Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. There are many things to consider when determining which property to buy. If you could predict future appreciation and also know downside risks, you'd be well ahead of the game of maximizing profits and avoiding devastating downturns. Stefan Svetkov, financial engineer turned multifamily investor and founder at Realty Quant, has developed solutions that predict appreciation and also downside risks for apartment syndicators and investors. So today we have with us a very interesting guy, a very smart guy. I mean, I have a lot of smart guys on the, uh, and women, not enough women, but I have a lot of smart guys on the show. You know, this guy is kind of at the top of the heap as far as that goes, my goodness. And uh, he is a financial engineer turned multifamily investor. He is the founder at Realty Quant. He is Stefan Svetkoth. Stefan, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you for having me, Roger. You are you are welcome. And so, Stefan, I have to ask the obvious question, or you know, maybe it's obvious, maybe it isn't, but it's the question I ask every guest, and that is, tell me, uh, like, where you were from originally, and uh, you know, what it was like growing up, and all that stuff before we get to the uh, the uh, bare knuckled real estate conversation. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I'm um, Eastern European, Bulgarian myself. So I grew up um, grew up in Bulgaria. I came here at 22 for my master's. Um, so I kind of so I did like master's in financial engineering in New York City, and then I worked in New York City in the financial industry for for about 10 years, like about a decade. And then I've been like I've been a multifamily investor in the in the New York City area in the in the recent couple of years. I see. And don't be shy. Where did you get your master's? I got my master's at uh, Columbia University. So that's, um, you know, like one of the leading, I mean, the leading university in New York, um, one of the leading universities in the country. Yeah, it was like a very technical, you know, technical field. Um, People with like math, kind of math engineering background from all over the world, you know, the US, uh, China, France, some Eastern Europe. Yeah. I got it. Okay, that's what that's what I wanted to hear. Okay, and so uh, what did your family do in Bulgaria? My parents, my 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 mother is a teacher. Um, my mother uh, used to teach economics at the high school level, and now she's been um, more recently. She went into like kind of like teaching autistic children, so kind of a little bit more humanitarian purpose. And my dad is in construction, kind of like a project manager like for different like German and Austrian companies in Bulgaria. All right. Well, and you worked you worked in the financial world for 10 years in New York. How did you decide to get into real estate? Yeah, great question. Um well, you know, I bought uh, I bought my primary residence. It was a fourplex actually, so I kind of did like the house hacking, I guess, <laughs> strategy. I didn't know, I didn't call it house hacking or anything. I just felt like it's a good way to to live, a, you know, sort of rent-free. And it happened to be a fourplex where the, one of the units was like actually really nice and spacious. 
had like a nice patio and all that. So, so I enjoyed it and I thought, oh, that works pretty well in terms of, I also had a little bit of a discount on the price for purchasing it. So I thought it works pretty well in terms of building equity and cash flow or sort of in this case, implicit cash flow, living rent-free. Um, so I thought it could be an interesting industry to try to capture market inefficiency, you know, since, you know, that's usually the challenge in finance that things are like super efficient. You know, there's lots of liquidity, you know, in most uh, most places in finance. And it's um, it's challenging to actually find a deal. Um, so so that's kind of what drew me to real estate. Got it. And where where is that fourplex? Fourplex was in Hudson County, New Jersey. So just like 20 minutes from Midtown Manhattan. And yeah, that's where I started. I've done like a few other investments there. And more recently, I've been doing some condo conversions in places like downtown Jersey City, Weehawken, places like that. So yeah, kind of the nearby, like very urban, close to Manhattan kind of um, area. I see. And so when you say condo conversions, you buying like small apartment buildings, yeah. two-plex, four-plex, and then converting them into condos and... and that's right. Yeah, yeah, small, small uh, multifamily for sure, not um, for that. Uh, so that typically would be ideally like a triplex. Um, but it's kind of, they go like, it, it's a little bit higher price points as well. Let's say my last deal was a four unit. It was like 1.65 million, something like that. So, so they're not cheap, you know, it's still kind of the New York City area. So they would go up to like, maybe like 300,000 per unit or like 400,000 per unit and then kind of make them into nice condos and, you know, like kind of realize some spread. What could you sell them as, as condos? Uh, well, the the four units, the most recent one, it's it's pretty big range. It's kind of where I'm going to see where it's going to end, but... It was the building was for 165 and there is a the single family kind of house kind of like a single family in the back so actually there's no spread on the front units but the single family um will be listing it hopefully at like 1.15 i see okay so in other words when you said 300 a unit to 400 a unit you're saying that's what you that's what they would go for as condos you're saying no no that's actually even as a um no no it's a multi-family they would be at such price so for example the fourplex was about 400,000 per unit, um, just to give like a case study, perhaps like for your, uh, for your audience. So 412,000 per unit at 1.65 purchase price, but it happens to have a, a nice like four or five bedroom single family house in the back. That's one of the four units. And so the strategy there is let's come to convert it for the purpose of simply of selling that, that house in the back. And, and so, so that single family house, that would be a condo single family house sort of like condo legal structure. It would be, you know, we will be listing it hopefully with my partner in that property for like 1.15. We might be having a three-dimensional conversation. And if I were to guess, it's a hundred percent my fault, uh, but I'm going to drill down. And if I can't get my head around this, we'll move on. But what I heard you say is that is it's four units, including the, the single family house and back is one of the units and it'll be sold as a condo. I'm correct so far, yes? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. And what you're saying is is that the 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 price for the four is like one point six five million, correct? 
Correct. Yeah. Okay. So if you were to average in, in, in what you're saying is the single family house is worth more, but if you average it out, it's about 400 grand per before you, you know, so, Correct. okay. All right. All right. Mm-hmm. So now we're tracking. So my question is, is when you sell each of these individually as condos, what will they sell for? Yeah, and uh, yeah, great question. Um, so, the, I mean, the front units would sell for essentially the same price as what was purchased. It's kind of unitized price within the multifamily. There, there's no spread, but really this here, the strategy is just to legally separate it so we can kind of take advantage of the back building. It's just, you know, sold separately. So, so I mean, it's really, that's where all the spread is. So it depends, like it's just gonna, I'm gonna see how the market goes. If it goes at this perfect price, then it's like a, 600,000 upside, you know, that's, that's what's, what would be if it goes at 1.15, then it's about no upside on the front unit, just kind of there a bit of nuisance just to be able to get the, the project done. Because um, uh, the reason for that is condo conversions are legally um, significantly less involved than subdivisions, especially in uh, kind of like highly urban areas, uh, like close to New York City. So, so it's really, this project is really a subdivision in essence, um, but just to achieve it in an easier, less legally involved way, it's done as a condo conversion and and all the spread is really on the back house. So you're, so. you're, so you're hoping the house will sell for a million bucks or thereabouts? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. all right, okay, I get it, man. No, I mean, there was, I mean, back in the day, uh, there are a lot of people that made a, uh, a king's ransom, a fortune in San Francisco doing the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And the dynamics of this market are similar to where you are, just it's super expensive and it's very hard to make. You know, these, even today, even with, with uh, COVID and San Francisco rents having come down in San Francisco, and they still ha- still haven't rebounded like they have in New York, but you still got to put probably 50, 60% down just to break even. I mean, it's ridiculous. And so, you know, and that's not always been the case exactly, but kind of. And so people, enterprising people have done what you're doing, which is they say, all right, well, let me just buy this, you know, five unit building and, and do a condo conversion and make a ton of money. And that's why I was asking, okay, so you are an, an analyst and a data geek kind of guy. Uh, sure. And that's mm-hmm. meant as a compliment. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you're really good at, and one of the values that you provide is finding the right markets. And so, you know, you've mm-hmm. kind of got some secret sauce around that that beats, you know, the typical, uh, you know, data sources that everybody else utilizes. And maybe you can mm-hmm. speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. So so how to pick markets? It's a, it's a really good question. So if you think about, let's say, a syndicator going out of state and like purchasing, let's say, like commercial multifamily in, um, you know, like in Southern or Western markets and so forth. So they typically, they would look at like job growth, population growth, you know, housing supply, like all the fundamental va- variables that drive um, real estate values. And they would, um, they would kind of pick a market or let's say they pick Atlanta, Georgia. And then in some cases, even they might, have a kind of human factor as to why they pick Atlanta, Georgia, and they would um, maybe back reason a little bit like all the strengths of that market and and that. Um, and this is a fine approach. Um, it works okay. Um, but like some of them, the more, what they find like a more rigorous approach is, um, is the following. So like, why do we pick markets? We essentially are predicting two things. So one is we want to predict appreciation. So the question there being like, what's actually the most, what's the most accurate statistically valid way to predict appreciation? 
if that is what a typical, let's say, for example, syndicator would do, if pu pulling uh, like the fundamentals is the approach, or if something else. And then um, the second question, though, that I feel is very, very little asked um, in the real estate industries, how do we predict downside risk? So and downside risk, that's super, super irrelevant while the market is going up and extremely relevant at the end of the cycle. And um, one can track downside risk by sort of measuring it and like having kind of like quarterly updates uh, for their market or really like the whole country because it's like free governmental data as far as um, as far as estimating your downside risk at any point of time. And so, um, so to the first point of appreciation. So I did a study where at my company, like you mentioned my company, Realty Quant. So just to give like a little bit of bigger background, like the market side is one thing um, that my uh, company does, but it's really like we focus on, we do like commercial multifamily modeling. Um, I have like a machine learning model for property condition scoring. We have like the market data analytics. So it's really also, we have also automated underwriting for residential real estate. We have our, our own kind of like zeros estimate, our own like automated valuation model um, and that. So it's really like a, ho a host of analytics and models, you know, that I personally have found useful in my own like investment enterprise um, or investment experience. Um, and so, so that's kind of the bigger picture. But when it comes to the market selection, so if we take predicting appreciation, so I did a study where um, if we take population growth, income growth, housing supply growth, predict those themselves. So let's say what if, what's going to be the population growth next year or something like that based on the history. And then um, and then of those, all those fundamentals that drive real estate values, then predict where the prices are going to go, sort of forecasting one one year ahead. And, um, and in a second... Uh, second uh, piece to this analysis, I simply took the prices and forecasted the prices themselves. And what was the result? The result was quite interesting. So predicting the fundamentals and then the prices from them actually gave a five times bigger error. While predicting prices themselves in a very trending market that doesn't deviate, let's say um, prior to 2021, I would say, when inflation kind of picked things up like too much and kind of deviated from the trend, uh, but predicting 2018, 2019, for example, if you take like state level prices, nobody cares about state level, it's like specific markets, but just to give an example, like uh, one would be able to forecast next year price change within like 1.2% error. So it's a, a very small error. And, and the same, um, if done the fundamentals route, it would be like a five times bigger error. And so like some of my suggestions, like to investors, like and friends of mine in the space and syndicators and so forth has been, Okay, um, you can look at the, all that stuff. I look at it as well. I pull, I have like pull like all the data, like all the demographics, all that stuff. I do look at it on the side, but that's not gonna be your best predictor of appreciation. Your better predictor of appreciation will be predicting prices themselves. There can be different reasons for that. One is, well, prices may be irrationally growing. Now, if they're irrationally growing, that's gonna be reflected in some of the downside risk measures, and I'm gonna talk to that in a moment. But but really, um, you want to capture that as well. You know, if we are having Western markets now with inflation and so forth growing above their fundamentals, you know, we want to capture that too in our next year appreciation prediction. And so this is kind of like one observation. This is kind of like very statistically, you know, like statistical 
observation and study that I did, um, you know, trying to show, okay, what's the better approach? Is the, you know, the standard investor investment manager approach of picking markets uh, really that valid? And and so so that's kind of the better approach. So, you know, like the way you hear like in finance, historical prices are not a predictor of future prices. Well, uh, sure, but uh, but to an extent, they are the, the best the best predictor available in a, in an asset like real estate. And actually, uh, how to verify this? Um, like there is in statistics, there is something called an autocorrelation test. So, trying to see if there is trend and momentum, if this year price growth correlates to last year price growth. And autocorrelation in places like in Florida, for example, is very high. So like if you knew like how prices performed last year, like the current year price growth correlates to that at like 77%. And that's like a 45 year history. And so this is like one, um, one observation that, okay, why do you pick markets? You want to, we want to have appreciation and you can have like various other qualitative factors, of course. And, and as we know, as real estate investment the investors, the property side is what's the most important, but still, again, uh, as far as the market, um, goes, it's really predicting appreciation. That is the one reason. But then the second piece I want to talk to is, is the following. So suppose we are investing now and there's like very high inflation. We're investing in Western markets or Southern markets. And let's take like Arizona as an example, or, or let, let's take Idaho as an example. So Idaho has like what has been like the best performing city this market cycle. So uh, to some of your audience who may know Neil Bawa, like data scientist. So uh, he spoke to that. It's Boise, Idaho. That's what I see in my data. So it's kind of like uh, unequivocally, it's Boise, Idaho. Out of 800 cities in the country, it's the one that has the highest appreciation. That's just price statistics. That's out there. Anyone can see it. And then we have, you know, obviously like uh, cities like Phoenix, Phoenix and, um, um, you know, uh, even Salt Lake City, Las Vegas and Austin and so forth and so forth that have done really well. And uh, obviously Tampa, Florida, et cetera. And, um, and so, so the question there being, if we take Boise, Idaho has performed really well. If we want to, if we run like a pre- forecast, price forecast for, let's say next year, and, and let's say, I'm not saying that's like a super... Uh, always accurate thing, but while well, the trend persists, it tends to be accurate, and then it, then it's until it's not. Um, but again, if we did that, so what's going to be the best appreciation predictor? It's going to be in Boise, Idaho, because that's just like the trend, right? It has done really well, so that's kind of what the the model is typically going to show. But on the other hand, wh- where is the biggest downside risk? It's there as well. So um, I did a I did like a study, which I call like computing market valuation metrics. So where should the market be valued compared to where it is now? And so I did it at the beginning of COVID. The reason why I, the reason for it was I was concerned with, okay, is the market going to potentially take a downturn? If we, re- we reach the peak of cycle, let's say potentially, um, what is going to be the best measure and predictor of downside risk? And so um, I, I, to do that, I tested like the global financial crisis declines that occurred. And before the global financial crisis, like just like to illustrate for your audience, like or, or sort of post the global financial crisis, the, the four states, and you know, one can go to, this really goes at the county level and I have like this data for like 2,700 US counties. But, um, but really at the, at, at the state level, just like high level discussion, the four states that were really overvalued at the time were, that, that really declined at the time, excuse me, were uh, California, Nevada, Arizona, and Florida. 
and they really dropped by like 40 to 50, even like for Nevada was like 56%. And so, um, and um, they were extremely overvalued at the time. So they're like, now there are different methodologies to how to assess this. So, so I tested, like I worked at like foreclosure rates, I worked at like various, various metrics, I worked at price volatility, kind of risk adjusted returns if you want, and, and, and all that. And what uh, proved to be the most predictive um, in the, like the, this, in the simplest measure as well. And one can expand on it and I have like more expanded versions too, but it was really affordability deviations versus historical levels. And so that sounds like very trivial and like very easy thing, but there are reasons to that and why it works so well. And so if one took like, for example, price income ratios and took them on a moving average 20 years back window, and then looked at, at the peak of the global financial crisis, where those price income ratios were in every state, and what were the declines after that, that occurred in those uh, markets, like during the global financial crisis, and the correlation of this degree of how overvalued they were, and uh, the subsequent declines was 85%. That's very high correlation. And so, and then at the county level, then the similar thing for like 2,700 US counties, and I did, and, and the correlation is less, so much less predictive at the county level, but still high, 75% for the county level. And so had one been computing what I call valuation metrics prior to the global financial crisis, one would know, one wouldn't know the timing of when it happens, but one would know the degree of um, his or her downside risk. And there were people who actually did that. And so one is um, like, so for example, Neil Bauer, he uses a vendor called Woco Market Monitor for some of his market analysis. And Woco Market Monitor is run by Ingo Windsor. So Ingo Windsor, he uh, was speaking on CNN in like 2005, 2006, and saying that some markets in California and Florida and so forth are dangerously overvalued. And know that he was doing it like this kind of simple, simple measure of like price income ratio deviations. And, and this model really can be expanded. And I've, I've done that and worked on it uh, within my company with adding population and housing supply and kind of doing like a, a whole regression of it and trying to like uh, improve the predictive power and all that. But even in like the, its very basic version, something that anyone can do. And I've been kind of like urging people to just, you know, get it as a practice and, and perhaps do it or hire somebody to do it for them. It's a, it's still very, very, very predictive. And so like to illustrate like the market, the states of the four over super overvalued states of California, Arizona, Nevada, and Florida at the time, they were in the 40 to 60% overvalued range and they dropped similarly. So they dropped like 40 to 56%. It was the decline. And, and this like to, to kind of give them some intuition, like this decline happened over four years and one quarter on average. So it, it didn't take, it wasn't like a sharp, you know, like sharp, sharp correction or something. It was like bleeding out for four years, you know, between 2007 and 2009. Yeah. Very interesting. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 305- 
467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So uh, obviously, and to the point that you're making, I mean, there's there's 2,700 counties, there's 50 states, and I get that. Mm-hmm. So if you could, where do you see us in the cycle? And then if you want to break it down to region, mm-hmm. state, feel free to do so. Sure. I guess just what you're thinking based on all the, the analysis. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so the same, um, so the same, uh, let's say, percentages that back then were like for those say like 40 to 60 percent right and just to clarify like for where are they now and i'm gonna get into that and just to clarify at that time there were 10 states for example even texas was among them that were undervalued and that's quite interesting so that's the peak ahead of the global financial crisis texas is undervalued places like north dakota are undervalued um do you know what was the average drop in those 10 states four percent that's interesting. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't come as a huge surprise to me just because like you said, I mean they you know again income to prices weren't that out of whack and even then there was probably well Texas there was probably some in migration at that time although I can't speak to that definitively, but the reality is I mean out here you had houses you know, in, in where I am in Northern California, you had houses selling for $500,000 to household incomes of $70,000. And I don't think you had that in places like Texas. So, you know, at 50,000 feet, without knowing the analysis that you do is not as, you know, generally, I, you know, you could see what you're describing. Right. Yeah, I agree. And that's a, that's a great, uh, yeah, great, great, addition there. Um, and just to, and actually the 4% was the, the median income drop in the US back then. So it's actually quite interesting because that actually means in like adjusted, like price to income terms, they, all those states had like zero drop. So it's quite interesting. That's telling like to myself, it's a financial, let's say finance person that, okay, it seems like real estate is a very, call it fundamental market. You know, like it's not something that just drops or corrects unless it goes overvalued for some reason. It otherwise doesn't correct below its fundamentals. Well, so so back to my question, uh, what's a broad brushstroke yes. of where you think we are? Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, currently there are like five states uh, that like, uh, to clarify, they kind of spiked up uh, during 2021. So at the beginning of 2021, even the first quarter, uh, U.S. real estate was like super fairly valued. So that was reported. It's not like only in my study. That was reported. There's a study at like Florida Atlantic University. And there is a Bloomberg Economics have a study for different countries. So Bloomberg Economics, they were since 2019 to the, the first quarter of 2021, they were sharing like where based on like a few met, several different metrics, four different metrics where U.S. where real estate is in the U.S., in Canada and in other countries. And so Canada was actually very overvalued since 2019 and through the beginning of 2021. And so was also, um, for example, Sweden, like places in Scandinavia, and also Australia, New Zealand, and to some extent, the United Kingdom. But U.S. real estate was actually fairly valued. And that was quite interesting. It was like right around 100%. It's interesting because then many investors, you know, they would feel even in places like the Northeast, which I think it's kind of an outrageous statement, you know, to think it's overvalued or it's expensive because, you know, it's like where nobody wants to invest right now, right? For various policy reasons, et cetera. And so, but even like, even investors in the Northeast, they would feel, oh, the market is so expensive. 
Should they worry about a down, downturn and things like that? And so, but U.S. real estate, broadly speaking, was really fairly developed. Now, there were some exceptions to that. And like the notable exception was the state of Idaho. And I was uh, already at the beginning of COVID, I was at some events and I was, excuse me, I was talking how like Idaho is 25% overvalued. And Boise in Idaho, the best performing city in the country as well, is actually, it was like around 33% in this measure. And so, so that was, that was like pronounced exception. Then like some of the very well performing places like Texas and Florida, they were like eight to 10%. But you know, that's kind of like fairly valued COVID. And, and they actually stayed there for four years. So since to clarify, like even though prices are rising in Texas and Florida in like this kind of normalized, um, normalized metric, uh, they were, it was staying super consistent. So for four years, every quarter, Texas and Florida, eight to 10%, eight to 10% staying consistent. And what happened in the second and third quarter of 2021 is that some of those measures doubled. So that's kind of like the coming of inflation. Uh, that's never, that's not reflected in the fundamentals to, to an equal extent. And so, and so for example, Texas and Florida were like eight to 10%. Now suddenly they, they jumped to like 17, 18%. And I wouldn't say that's a bubble, it's 17, 18%, you know, but it's already kind of carrying a higher, higher downside risk. And then in the, um, in some of the Western states like Idaho, it jumped from 25 to 47% um, as of latest, gov- latest governmental data. And so it's really, I would say five states that perhaps, again, like I'm not bearish on them, I have the highest appreciation forecast for the same states. And like, I can go to the specific cities actually in them in a, in them in a moment, but, but really Idaho, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and Arizona, kind of those Western states are kind of more overvalued in the, uh, I guess, 20, 20 to 30% range for Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and Arizona. And um, Idaho is at 47%, kind of a sharp, pronounced exception and really at the top. And so, so that's that. And then as far as some of the cities uh, there, well, Boise, like I mentioned, Boise spiked significantly, like over 50% in this measure. And I, I've been waiting for like some of the governmental data for year end, because it's kind of very slow to be released. Mm, and I'm curious where it's going to be exactly, but really, really, it seems to be like over 50% overvalued. And, and again, those are just specific places in the West. It's not broadly the U.S., real estate. It's, it's just specific places in the West. And so um, Boise is there. I mean, places like Phoenix, Phoenix is not, not so bad, but, you know, like already, like perhaps in like 25 to 30% um, overvalued range. And it's really very well, very well, extremely booming, extremely well performing markets. And, you know, like places like Austin and Las Vegas and so forth. So that is, uh, that is like some of the the current state. So when you say overvalued, is it um, what rents relative to income and or uh, the price of the, what the properties are selling? So so let me sum it like this. So really the real meaning there is what the current prices are versus what the prices predicted of um, income population and housing supply are. Okay, so it's the price of the properties themselves is what you're discussing. Yes, the price of the, well, the price of the properties aggregated at the market level, yes, relative to their fundamentals. So, and and when, if we look at it in a simple, 
if we take only income, let's say we can ignore, let's say we ignore population and housing supply for a second, and we only look at price income and like price income ratios, like in the earlier discussion, it's really affordability in those places has gone um, above its moving average historical level, let's say over a 20 year period. And so that's kind of, that has been, at least during the global financial crisis, highly statistical predictive of the subsequent declines and like I said, there, those declines, they could happen very slowly. They could be like, 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 like it was then bleeding out over four years. In some, some markets, it was like bleeding out over six years. But the ultimate magnitude of this bleeding out correlated very strong to, to affordability deviations. And really, it's not only affordability, because if we take a place like San Francisco, for example, right? Um, and let's say historically, um, and I don't know the, off the top of my head, the exact price income, you know, like home prices to household incomes or like personal income relationship that is there right now. But let's say it's very high. Let's say it's around 20 or 15 or something like that, right? And suppose it has been just five, you know, 50 years or 70 years ago. But the fact that San Francisco has an affordability of 20 now does not make it overvalued. And in fact, at the beginning of COVID, San Francisco is actually undervalued by 5%. And um, I can look up like where it is now, but but it's most definitely not overvalued. And there's like also various like weaknesses that develop there and so forth. But it's really, yeah, I think it's it's actually undervalued now significantly. I understand that. Um, so what are you're you're talking about the highest appreciating states coming up? What what are they? Yeah, I mean, the highest appreciation states, I mean, forecasting is, you know, kind of difficult to do for really long periods, but let's say like for 2022, what do they have? Like, well, I mean, it's going to be Idaho, Utah, and Arizona are the top three. I see. So they're, so they're, they're still predicting it is overvalued as Idaho was. They're predicting it's still going to appreciate a lot. Yes, because think about it. That's how there is no, like there is no model that can you know, statistically predict like a reversal in the trend in a really good way. There, there's nothing like that. So it's, so it's while we stay in the same market cycle, the best performing this market cycle places are going to have the best and most bullish on Idaho. If you took, take one year uh, cycle, but again, even though it's super overbought and that is, that's just the nature of real estate because real estate has like this trend driven, it's momentum driven. There's some exceptions to that. That's in fact, like Alaska has negative autocorrelation, has kind of like negative trend, you know, it, or it sort of doesn't negative trend in the sense like it doesn't have like conflict. Like it's not, there's no rhyme or reason to it. There isn't a situation where last year price growth correlates to this year price growth and so forth. But it's not the case for, for those Western markets. It's not the case for Florida. And uh, they do have a strong momentum. And so, but again, the question that's going to be is when is the market cycle going to end? And when it does, those are going to be the most exposed states. So it's really, there's no like, you know, kind of simple, um, you know, like emotional, positive or negative view that I'm providing here. It's rather, it's both. It's really, they're, they have like the best short-term potential or whichever potential like over next year, but they also simultaneously carry the biggest downside risk. And it's quite, and I can give like some examples to when markets performed really well at the beginning of COVID, Denver, Colorado performed extremely well. As we know, you know, it has been like a top five city, perhaps in like big 100 cities in the country. And so Denver, Colorado had like, like this stellar outstanding performance. And yet at the beginning of COVID it was, fair, was fairly valued. 
was like at exactly 0%. And so that's quite interesting. That's kind of like the value of computing these things because had I been living in Denver, Colorado, I would be seeing, you know, prices skyrocket and I would thinking this market is so high, it's probably in a bubble or something like that. But only when you can compute it, you actually figure out, oh, it's actually apparently all the fundamentals match to that, you know, and it's actually like just right where it should be. And that changed, of course, afterwards with inflation and so forth. And I believe Denver, Colorado is now at around 12%, like slightly overvalued, but but it's really not that bad. And, um, you know, maybe 15 at most. Uh, and, and then there's like places like, let's say if we take the state of Indiana, that's not, okay, it's not depressed like the Northeast, um, where, you know, just like for your audience, like some of them know that, you know, due to like policy reasons and, and so forth, like the demographic trends in the Northeast have been negative for for many decades already really but but we take let's say indiana it's not depressed like the northeast there there is interest there's um out of state investor interest there there are a good number of syndications that get that got get done in indiana um and they were you know they were undervalued as well at the beginning of COVID, and their the price performance in you know varying of course by whether it's indianapolis or other markets but but generally within the state there was like solid healthy price performance, not as strong as the Western markets, not as strong as Florida, but it's also undervalued at the time. And now it's kind of fairly valued at the current moment. So so it's really like one, it's really risk management. It's really picking the best mix of appreciation and downside risk that one wants to, to have, you know, let's say, for example, for myself, you know, like it's the, at the current time, like I look at uh, some of those places in the in the Midwest, like Indiana, Kentucky and Ohio, you know, for as a safer bet at, you know, like considering some of the valuations in other states. But I also look at Florida, you know, even even that, because because I'm thinking, okay, Florida at the state level is like 17, 18% overvalued. Let's say maybe I'm lagging in my computations a bit with all the governmental data. It could spike to like 20, 25 even. But again, if you take a project that's relatively shorter, maybe you can take a risk, you know, inflation is still going and so forth. And maybe you can do like a two year project. And that's where, where you're going to kind of reap like the highest appreciation. Now, that's going to be higher risk as well, obviously, since you will be carrying simultaneously all the downside risk or some some downside risk like during this time. Uh, but, but it also takes time for all that price correction to happen. For example, in like past the global financial crisis, like about a quarter of, I believe a quarter of the 25% of the downturn happened within a year and then the rest afterwards. So it's really, you know, like if you, if you are aware of where of valuation metrics, if you keep tracking them every quarter, um, you could make an exit, you know, it's not so impossible. It's not like that sensitive and that, um, volatile as the stock market. And, and so it's really like a personal risk management and decision. Like I said, I don't like specifically urge people and like even suggest to them, oh, don't invest in Western markets at the time. It's just to be aware of where valuations stand broadly in like places like the Midwest and Northeast versus the West. And, it, and it's definitely what should come as no surprise that like the, like the five Western states that I just mentioned are, um, you know, are the most overvalued. And then like places in the Midwest and Northeast are under to fairly valued. So tell me about what your investing is. So are you, do you work as a, as a general partner? Do you invest in other mm-hmm. deals uh, as, a, as far as apartment syndication goes? What, what right. role are you playing? Where are you investing? What kind of class yes. property and all that good stuff? 
Yeah, great question. Yeah, so I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I've been like a New York City investor in, um, you know, obviously like smaller properties in the New York City area, and um, I've been uh, switching to uh, commercial multifamily, and so I recently bid on um, like a fifty unit. Um, I'm still in the process of kind of. I did have an accept, but I I don't like the price too much, and I've been a bit like doing some back and forth on the price, like a fifty unit. In, it's actually in Iowa. You know, and it, that's not a, that's kind of like one of those, I would say like Midwest markets that it's in near, like it's, it's like a suburb of Des Moines. And, you know, it's a, it's again, like with my risk tolerance, I would say at current time, that's like something I, I'd be comfortable with. It's a, it's an undervalued market. So I know I would carry like minute downside risk, literally, you know, with the magnitude of about 4% or something like that, or it could be a bit more, but but not not super high. And so price performance has been also healthy and like good demographic, uh, you know, like demographic uh, setup and, and all that. So, so that's like really been switching to commercial amount of multifamily and building up our model for like off-market commercial multifamily. And I can speak to that a little bit, like, if you have quality rental listings data on the commercial multifamily side, and there are a few vendors that provide that and sell that, you know, like from places like apartments.com and really other, it could be even realtor.com and other, you know, like resources and sort of like Costar and, and so forth. But you have like quality rental listings data that includes not just the rent level, but also some of the other income, other income components to those rental listings, such as what pet fees, administrative fees, and things like that, all those commercial multifamilies are charging and what utilities are being built to the tenant and so forth. And and trying like also based on rental listings to gauge some of the occupancy of buildings, you can really build a model where you would have like the whole country of off-market commercial properties modeled out on their um, expected value add based on rental listing. And that is the model that I have. And actually we're releasing a product at Realty Quant that um, I've been a bit busy with like my own investments and I haven't had a chance to release it yet, but hopefully um, either end of this month or or by next month, that's going to be kind of like commercial multifamily lead generation. That is, it's really like if you take something like Prospect Now or uh, Yardy Matrix or things like that, and you have like feeds, um, you know, it's really kind of a step ahead of, actually adding some intelligence to that and actually looking at, well, if you're doing whichever direct owner campaigns, and I'm not saying direct owner campaigns are the most efficient efficient thing in commercial multifamily, certainly it's agent relationships driven. But again, to the extent that you want to do something data driven on a subset of your uh, acquisition strategy and so forth, and you want to do some direct owner, um, it's really like a more intelligent approach where you, you can only pitch to buildings that are actually showing some potential in, in their showing below market trends, showing that they're under-optimized with their um, other revenue streams, like other income, like I mentioned, like administrative, pet fees, application fees, and all that relative to their immediate neighborhood. If their utilities, you know, are not optimized and so forth. And this is, of course, very, very preliminary. And, um, you know, it's not like the same as having the actual income expense sheet of a property, but then you're able to nevertheless this preliminary analysis carry to thousands and thousands of commercial multifamilies. And, and so this is like a model I put together. And like I mentioned, we'll be releasing a product of, if we take like a market, let's say Indianapolis or others or Louisville, Kentucky or something like that, 
and it's kind of literally going to give you um, what are the best, what are some really good buildings where off market where you can actually raise, kind of have value add and raise the improved DNY of those buildings and ways to improve their their NY suggestions like tips and so forth. It's enormously compelling what you're describing. I mean, to be able to kind of, uh, before you even get into a market or uh, approach a potential seller to know, you know, pretty much from a holistic perspective what the value add is against these different data points is pretty gosh darn mm-hmm. compelling. And then of, of course, you know, weighed against the the general affordability of a market and trajectory uh, moving forward is, uh, you know, I can see where it hedges a tremendous amount of risk. What would you say, or I, I guess in terms of you are obviously so data oriented, what would you say have been like key lessons that you've learned around data collection or however you'd want to describe, however you'd want to answer that question? Um, yeah, great question. And key lessons, I think for me, I've been, um, I just recently posted like a, like a hiring, like hiring, like an acquisition analyst. For me, like some of the lessons have been, even if you have like all this data and, um, and if you, even if you're like automated, doing some automated underwriting for properties, it does take, you know, like in the final stage, I mean, and that should be obvious, of course, to, I'm sure like to most of your audience, but you know, it does take, um, you know, some manual underwriting of deals, obviously as well. It's an, it's a component, you know, like the most important component, of course, and um, the final component. And so I always, I felt like, oh, if I build up all those data-driven processes, I'm going to be really on top and I'm going to have like kind of business efficiency and be able to scale and all that. Um, but then I like, I realized, oh, then I'm actually end up like super lazy, you know, to underwrite, do the manual part of the underwriting after that. And like, I found that, oh, it's, it's not enough. You still need to hire an acquisitions person or or if it happens to be that you really want to be like day and night underwriting deals, then that's okay. But but you know, you really need to have a, an acquisitions person as well. So that has been like one lesson just in as far as like growing the business. And but really the way I put it together now is okay, let's hire an acquisitions person, but that acquisitions person will be working jointly with with all those scripts. We'll be working jointly with those automated processes and and even like um having him or her, you know, be able to run some of those automated processes and kind of interact with them and then perform like his, you know, analysis in addition to that. And and that I feel, and at least I'm hopeful, is going to be like a more, you know, like more efficient system. Got it. How would, if one were so inclined, Stefan, how would one get a hold of you and, and engage you for a, uh, you know, for further dialogue here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, RealtyQuant.com. So that's my website. We publish market data there for like 2,700 U.S. counties um, and all, all U.S. states. And um, yeah, we're going to be coming up with a few other products, like I mentioned, on the commercial multifamily side and condition scoring. That's the best way to really reach me. So realtyquant.com and also my LinkedIn, pretty active on LinkedIn as well. Okie dokie. Well, it sounds absolutely fantastic. And uh, I look forward to circling back and getting uh, current at some point uh, again in the future as the world changes. Mm -hmm. So I thank you very much. Talk to you soon.